Hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 9 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewitt. I want to help people has become the reflex canned answer at every fire candidate's interview. But looking around you, whether you're in a college program or on the job, sometimes you have to wonder if it's a lie or a lost value. Have you walked the talk leading up to this opportunity? Will you continue to beyond the minimum standard required to fly under the radar? What is your motivation to get on or stay on? My guest this episode has and continues to walk and climb the talk. It's hardwired in her DNA. We talk about her peer support work within her own department, her time with health and safety, her support work for all first responders outside of her workplace, and her efforts with the not-for-profit mom to mom an organization with the goal to assist the children in Tanzania, which included her summiting Mount Kilimanjaro. What allows her to give so much as her first walking the talk for herself? Self-care is the cornerstone. She has also never shied away from the physical work the fire service requires. She has a family history in the fire service, and a work ethic was instilled early on. She has worked in forest firefighting and as a volunteer. She was one of the first women to be hired on full-time with her department. We talk about that experience and what it was like to go off the trucks to have her daughter, work modified duties, and returning to the trucks. Her focus on others has grown to an interest in life coaching, which she currently returned to school to learn. I really enjoyed our discussion. It's my pleasure to bring you Joanne Marshall Dunn. Hey, Joanne. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good. Good. We just talked about how uh, weird it is to get these started because we've been chatting for a while and then you have to sit down and I have to say hello to you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of weird. <laughs> the first five minutes uh, are always a bit strange. Yeah. <laughs> and then just to give everybody some insight, you had a great idea. This morning we started off with a guided meditation. Yeah, it was awesome. It was a good way to start for sure. Yeah. Center ourselves and get ready. Yeah, I came in a little <laughs> hot, I think. <laughs> Last day of school. Yeah, exactly. The youngest one was in a rough spot. There were timeouts involved. <laughs> and then uh, running an errand. Yeah. And then screaming back here to uh, to get this set up. So it was nice to do that and settle in a bit. And breathe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right on. Yeah. So I just actually wanted to kind of just say thank you to you for everything that you do with peer support and even having this podcast and bringing some difficult conversations to light. Mm. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there and show my respect for you as well. I appreciate that. <laughs> no worries. Cool. So a number of people I've had on here have no family background with the fire service and you fall into the, the category where you do have a family background. Yeah. Who was uh, in the fire service in your family? Uh, it started off with my grandpa. He was a captain for a long time. He was a volunteer. And uh, my dad actually, uh, my grandpa actually inspired my dad to get onto the volunteer fire department. So, but they were, they weren't at the same time volunteers at the same station. Um, and then my dad volunteered for about 13 years. And um, that definitely sparked an interest with my brother. We kind of grew up around the fire hall. So, um, it definitely got my brother going too. And so then, uh, he volunteered for a long time before he got on full-time and he's now full-time firefighter for a very long time as well. So, and my uncle was a vol um, actually a full-time firefighter. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, rampant in my life and my family. So do you have memories yeah. of your dad heading off to calls? I do. And actually, and like most volunteers, you, you know, you had a family function and, you know, you're at Christmas or whatever, and he, you know, kind of takes off. I was fairly young when uh, when he was on, so I do remember actually even going to calls with him when he responded. He would go actually to the call and take us with him, so, <laughs> which was kind of odd. I don't have a lot of memories of that, 
necessarily because I was so young, but the odd one. I remember my brothers kind of talking about it and, and stuff. So, yeah, so did your yeah. family talk shop a lot? Not so much. I think my uncle and him talked a bit of shop when they got together and stuff, but I don't I don't remember a lot of shop talk. I just remember going to the functions at Christmas and you know, engaging the kids at all the family functions and kind of being around and hanging out on the trucks and playing on them and stuff like that. And But yeah, there wasn't a lot of shop talk. Now, I mean, between my brother and I, that's another story. <laughs> We're both on full-time together now, so we have to kind of cut it short sometimes because people in our family don't like hearing about fire talk all the time. So. <laughs> so due to all that exposure, you mentioned that it was an inspiration for your brother, but was it in your mind early on too? Were you encouraged to? Yeah, I think it was different. I think for him, I think it was something that he always had in the back of his head and, and kind of wanted to do from a younger age. He volunteered when he was pretty young. For me, it was a little bit different. I never really had it in my head to even imagine that I could do the job. Number one, at the point when thinking about a career, I don't even think I knew of any female firefighters even out there. So I didn't have, I didn't even have it in my thoughts in my head that I could even do that job physically even you know doing the academic part of getting through and so it never really crossed my mind until I started doing the forest firefighting. What was in your mind before that though so what did you do in your early teens early adulthood what was your goal before fire fell in? <laughs> I had a lot I think I was all over the place I think I wanted to be an interior designer and uh, a teacher and I know when I was super young a teenager I had surfing posters all over my wall I'd never even been to the ocean but I was adamant that I was going to be a professional surfer <laughs> so I kind of have I was kind of all over the place but I knew I needed something physical in my life and I knew that it had to have a lot of variety because I played a lot of sports and, and stuff like that so I knew that uh, I knew that it had to have that diversity I just didn't know exactly kind of where I wanted to go. I lived out west for a little while and trying to find myself. I knew it maybe had to be outdoors or something like that. So I was pursuing college in forestry. So I have a forestry background as well as ecotourism. So I was kind of going that way. I was kind of directing that way and maybe being a park ranger or something. But then when I was uh, up doing the forest firefighting thing up in northern Ontario, I was actually pursued by a volunteer firefighter when I was in the library one day. And he just asked if I wanted to be a firefighter, a volunteer firefighter for that community. Kind of took me by surprise. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll try it out. And so I tried it out for about a month. And I just, I fell in love with it immediately. Just the training and then just like all that teamwork, right? And that just kind of encapsulated everything that I did growing up with all the team sports and stuff. So then moved down to um, Southern Ontario and started to pursue that and started to volunteer for a fire department down in Southern Ontario uh, for a couple of years. Did the forestry education stream, did that lead to the forest firefighting? It did, yeah. So in forestry, the, the, we took like S100, so it gets you into the forest firefighting. So I did that for about three summers. Um, but even still when doing that, I never had structural firefighting in my mind. It was just, I was still trying to figure, I was trying to figure it out. I still wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. Again, I knew it had to be something physical and having that variety, um, which I mean, I love the forest firefighting thing. And in the wintertime, I taught snowboarding, so you know it was all active and physical and stuff. But it, but it wasn't sustainable. I didn't make a very good living, and so I, uh, I needed to find something more. And I think you know I was able to start my venture by volunteering. How did the forest firefighting in Ontario differ from what goes on at West? What was your typical summer like? 
depending on the season, my first season was really dry. So we were all over the place. We were up in Northern Ontario. I was more kind of central Ontario based. So we would get flown around all over the country really to help other departments. So typical day you'd go in and um, have your shift and you would just be at the hall per se. It was a house basically, you know, if you get a call or they were, you know, there was a fire in your area, then they would drive you out to the helicopter base and then fly to wherever you needed to go. And then depending on obviously the size of the fire would depend on how long you were there for. It could be anywhere from half a day to a week or so or or longer, depending if you were just staying in Ontario or if you were going out west. And how was the camaraderie and team bonding in that community? Yeah, it was amazing. We had a a crew of three. You were put with them. That's kind of who you worked with for the whole time you were there. Yeah, it was great. I mean, you, you're camping together. So you're you're at a fire and you're setting up your tents and you're eating together and you're camping together. And, you know, you're there for days on end. You really got to know your crew and you just really work together to get the job done. Do you miss being that unplugged? <laughs> I try to incorporate that as much as I can still in my life. Definitely just kind of being dropped off and just having that freedom. And it was definitely a great time for sure. And it was okay being disconnected from family for that long. How were you in contact with everyone back home? Yeah, well, I didn't have a cell phone back then. I would like, kind of give them a heads up before I left of, you know, how long I would probably would go for. We would get kind of an idea. And you could always kind of call when you're, depending again on how big the fire was, right? Like if you're at a base where they had an, uh, an area where you could call home. There was a couple times where you could call home from like a satellite phone or something like that. But um, if I was gone for a couple of days and I was just kind of, we were kind of dropped off, there would just be communication when I came back. So... Yeah, there wasn't a, it wasn't a ton of communication. It was, you're kind of off the grid for a while too. So yeah, it was kind of nice. <laughs> and have you worked that hard since? <laughs> have I worked that hard since? Yeah. <laughs> like working a forest fire versus right. running a fire in an urban setting. I imagine you haven't yeah, worked at that level. I think it's, it's just, it's different. I think it's just different. I mean, you're not wearing, first of all, you're not wearing all the gear for a fire. It's hard work, but it's, it's, I think it's just different. The weight of the hoses, the hoses are a lot smaller and you have different setups. Like you still have a portable pump that you have to set up. And so all the, you know, all that's the same. You have to get a water supply, but um, yeah, there were definitely some long days per se, but depending on the, the size of the fire, right? Some of the bigger fires that we had out West, they really made sure that you had your breaks. They kind of pulled you out and put another crew in and that kind of stuff to make sure that you were getting your rest. Yeah, it's just, it's just different, I think. Anything intense? Anything, any close calls? Yeah, when we were at West, one where they actually had to pull us off the fire, the fire kind of turned on us. Um, we were still in a safe spot. It was a funny story. We had a, a grizzly bear that was kind of tracking us down. They had to fly us out of that fire for a little while till they kind of contain the bear. We had no idea what was going on. We just knew that we had to get off the fire pretty quickly. So we weren't sure if it was necessarily the fire that turned or, or what. Then we got wind that it was a bear. So <laughs> it was kind of a little bit different. Grizzly's a little bit more aggressive than the black bears we have around here. So, <laughs> so who was it that drew you in to be a volunteer? You mentioned that someone asked you. How did that connection occur? I was in the town that I was uh, that I was doing forest fire and I was just had a day off and I was at the library and I was just kind of sitting around and he, this guy just came up to me and he's like, you look like you could be a good firefighter. We're looking for volunteers. <laughs> it's just kind of random. At that time, I just I just said, yeah, yeah, why not? Right. And I try it out. And, you know, because I knew I had that background and that family. So I, I 
thought I'd just give it a try. Why not? Right. So kind of random, but everything happens for a reason, obviously. And uh, you thinking back that it was kind of some random thing, but it was obviously what was needed to happen to spark my interest in that direction, I guess. Yeah. So due to the response times being unavoidably longer than full time, you must have gone to a number of heavier involved fires over that time. Yeah, I mean, fires are bigger, the accidents are like a lot more, more tragic, I guess you could say, you know, you're going faster on those country roads, I think, and the fires that are out in the country and it takes a bit, it's a bit more time to get there than you are in the city, right? So you had mentioned to me there was one where you rolled up and there was only two of you on scene. Yeah, we responded to the hall and, uh, and it was during the day. And so that's usually the hardest to get people out to the station to respond there was only two of us on the truck and we rolled up and the house was fully going and there was no other trucks in sight. It was a little nerve wracking until the other truck showed up, but we had help pretty quickly. You just don't get that working in the city full time, right? You have help pretty much right behind you and you have more than two people on the truck. You're not kind of put in that position, but I mean, that's what volunteer is, right? You know, at any point, you don't know who's going to be around. At the department that I was at, there was, you know, a couple people that owned a business right in town. So they were able to always respond pretty much. And just that day, they were busy with their life, right? I mean, that's what volunteer is. You have a full-time job doing something else and you can't guarantee how many people are going to be around. Were you operating under any kind of two-in, two-out rule? Were there any official things set down that would limit you? I mean, obviously it's tough to, two of you, what do you do, set the pump, mm-hmm. charge the line and then just leave it, let it run and trust that it's going to work and head in yeah I think it was it was pretty quick again like we showed up on scene and there weren't any trucks around per se but it was within a couple of minutes so you know I think my captain at that time he did the 360 pretty close to a 360 and then we just started getting the pump ready and we did have definitely the two in two out we weren't going in until there was support did the grass fires harken you back to your forest firefighting days (laughs) was that your wheelhouse (laughs) yeah Yeah, we call them piss packs in uh, forest fires. So yeah, when, I, when we're doing truck checks, I always call them piss packs. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, ah, it's a forest fire thing. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. If you're pissing that way, there's probably a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, we've had a few grass fires for sure. And it's, yeah, it kind of brings me back. It was, it was a good time. It was definitely a good time and lots of experience meeting lots of people and you know, getting to a lot of different areas of Ontario that you would never get to because you're getting dropped off by a helicopter, making a helipad. And, you know, you're just in so many remote areas that you would never get to as just like an average citizen. So it was pretty cool to be able to see parts of Ontario and out west that you would never see. Was smoke jumping an option? I think I thought about it, but I never, I never pursued it. Family was still here and stuff like that. So, I mean, I went out west before I did forest fire. So I kind of already, already did that. And I, I came back to go to school for forestry and stuff. Um, but I did actually apply to um, a forest fire location down in Australia. Actually, I did get hired, but I declined it eventually because that same year, a whole bunch of their firefighters died and they had a different health and safety regulations down there. And it just made me a little uneasy. So I didn't actually accept the job, but it was just something that I thought, oh, that's kind of a neat thing to do. I'm going to go down there and and share my skills down there and have a a different experience, but didn't feel right, I guess. I just, there was something in me that told me not to do it. So I declined that. So you mentioned before about the MVCs also being more severe in volunteering. And you had mentioned a particular one to me where a captain opened your eyes, I guess I could say in a way to when to open your eyes and when not to open your eyes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I wasn't on very long and uh, we had a really bad single MVC and the vehicle was rolled. 
the person wasn't wearing their seatbelt. We were stuck in truck in. We pulled up on scene and I was getting out. I mean, I was new, so I wanted to get on scene and, you know, see everything. And, you know, when you're new, you just want to be there and help and like just see what's going on. And my one captain came up to me and a couple other people on my truck and just stopped us and said, you don't you, you don't need to go any further. Like there's nothing we can do kind of thing. And I mean, you're so you know, you got your adrenaline pumping because you're new and you just, you just want to experience everything. And you want to wear and, it all. Yeah. You want to wear it all. And I mean, it's human nature to want to see. I didn't understand it. it. took me time to really process it. Why he actually stopped me. Cause I was new. I'm like, I want to experience this. Why aren't you letting me go? But I mean, when there's nothing that you can do, there's no need to see something that you can't unsee. And so I really now look back and respect that he did that it's one less thing that i have in my head that i that i didn't need to see so we don't have have the foresight that there's going to be so many times over 30 years where you don't have a choice Mm -hmm. exactly yeah so why add to it that's a strong way for us to be there for each other i've done that coming around the corner in a house for a vsa or a code five and i'm the only one that peeked in turn back to my partner and say no we're good i have done that even in the last couple of years too, you know, there's nothing that we could do. Me purposely not going in to see it because I didn't, I didn't need to. We have only so much room for that kind of stuff. So when did you decide to pursue full-time? You went to pre-service? I did. Yeah. So I was volunteering for a couple of years and I was applying and I had some interviews for some departments, but I wasn't ready. Like I think my brother inspired me just to kind of just go for it, like just try some of the testing and the fitness. Even though I was a volunteer, I still had it in the back of my head that I, I couldn't do the job. I couldn't physically do the job or get past the aptitude test. So he just said, just try them, just see where you need to work. Like, you know, do the fitness test. If you if you don't pass, then you can work on what you need to work on to get through. And so I did my first fitness test and I passed. I did my first aptitude test and I passed and I wasn't mentally ready for it. I was shocked, I guess you could say. So then I got an interview and it was just so fast and I wasn't prepared in my mind for it. And I mean, I had a horrible interview (laughs) and I just kind of threw it away. But then I went to school. I needed to learn more. I needed to be ready in my mind and I needed to have that education behind me. So yeah, so I enrolled in in Conestoga. I took the full-time program because I had a full-time job um, that I was doing at the time. I knew it was something that I wanted to do. So I I knew I needed to do everything I could to get on. So I was kind of going full bore, volunteering and taking the course and just everything I had that I could to put forward. So So when you got back to interviewing, were you taking a shotgun approach, uh, applying everywhere? Were Were there certain departments that you had in mind? Yeah, I mean, because I was volunteering in the area that I was, I had, I definitely had specific areas where I wanted to be because of being able to interact with them. And my one chief from my volunteer was actually my chief for, it was the chief for the full-time, the full-time community close by too. So, so they knew of me also the school that I was going to, a lot of the instructors were from a department too, that I had high interest in going to. Um, I did apply to other departments and I had other interviews as well, but I definitely had my my top three where I wanted to be for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What was your recruit class like? Were you the only female in the group? No, I wasn't. We had um, we had another I had another female. So we actually had multiple departments in a recruit class. So there were two other departments that joined us. Just instead of having a small recruit class, they decided to put us all together at our training center. So it was fun. It was actually fun to kind of interact with, you know, the other departments, just work together. And we really bonded and um, we're a good team together. 
It's yeah. interesting that they would bring multiple departments together and run a class because I just think about how hard it is to get everyone to agree how to run a recruit class for your own department. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they brought their different skills from the different departments and their specialties to kind of to train us. So and we don't we don't do that anymore. So <laughs> I think a lot of departments like to do things their own way. And even though we're doing the same job, we, we tend to do things slightly different. So how was your first year on the trucks? It was good. When I first started, um, they put me at an outstation because the platoon that I was on at the time, they weren't apparently ready to have me being a female. So I wasn't allowed, not allowed, I guess, but they, they made the choice. My platoon chief made the choice to put me at an outstation until I guess the crew was ready. <laughs> so They had to horse whisper them. <laughs> yeah. So it was interesting concept. Um, I, you know, the the haul that I was at, we didn't get a ton of calls really. Um, I worked with an amazing bunch of guys at, at that hall. So, I mean, I had a great year, but I, I always had that in the back of the head. Like, you know, why? I don't understand why they're not ready for me. They have a bathroom. And <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't really understand why, why I had to kind of go out. I mean, we had, I had another person on my platoon that, uh, that was new too. So they don't like to put everybody together necessarily. So little bit different. <laughs> you interact with women in every other aspect of your life. All of a sudden, this is completely foreign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just, we didn't have, we only had two other women on the department at the time and um, that platoon just hadn't had the experience. So they just made a choice just to kind of ease into it and figure how it's going to go and I guess see how I was and just see that interaction. So, and I don't know if that happens in different departments, but I'm sure um, it's not the only instance. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So shortly after that, you had a distinct life change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I never really kind of had in my head that I wanted to have a family. I got married, I guess, six months into my hire and I was very into my career and I wanted to focus on that. And we kind of just unspokenly said that we weren't going to have children. And then, uh, yeah, I, I actually see my niece born and it wasn't the best birth. And you would think I would turn away running, but it actually made me want to have a child. But I was torn. I was only on for a year and a half and just finished probation. I had this battle in my head of, you know, what do I do? I'm not through my classes yet. And I worked so hard to get onto this career. I don't want to go off already. You know, I'm, I'm loving it. But I had in my back of my head, like I'm at a certain age. I don't want to, you know, I got hired when I was 29 and 30 and a half, I guess you could say when I was thinking about this. And it was really played in my mind. And I, I kept battling what I should do and was thinking, you know, the guys are going to judge me if I get pregnant and leave. I always had that in the back of my head of like what other people are going to think. And I had a conversation with a fellow coworker. We were just cutting the grass one day and he asked if I was thinking of having kids. And I said, I am, but I just don't know what to do. I think I'm ready, but I feel like I, I shouldn't because I just got on and I feel like I'm going to be judged. And I feel like maybe I should go through my classes first. And he just said to me and without even hesitation, he just said, you know what? It's your life. Fire is going to be here. If you want to have a child and, and raise a family, then do it. Don't worry, you know, what other people are going to think of you because it's your life and you need to take control over it. If that's what you want to do. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I didn't have that conversation. I honestly don't know if I would have proceeded at that time because I was very hesitant of having a baby. So I think we take for granted as guys that we have this ease and privilege of just deciding to have a family and then just going back to work. Mm -hmm. the next day mm -hmm. and nothing 
changes on that end. Yeah. I mean, it was a difficult decision because not only that, in my department, no other female actually had had a baby. Another girl had already had her children, so she didn't actually have them while she was on the job. For me, it was new for everyone. It was just what's foreign to the whole department. So it made it a little bit harder for me to make that decision because I, I didn't even know what I'd be doing. I knew for myself that I needed to be off the trucks immediately. I knew for the health of my baby that I needed to to not respond. I mean, you never know what we're going to get into on a day-to-day basis. So I could drive for a while, but I mean, you never know. You can't count on me not going into a call. It's so unpredictable, obviously, what we do that I wasn't willing to risk it. So People can be very judgmental about other people's progression of work and life. There seems to be an unspoken, unwritten template that people have in their minds that you need to fit into. Well, if you wanted to have kids, then you should have done A, B, and C, and then done D, E, and F, and then got on the job, and then, and then. That's the perfect progression, and anything outside of that is your fault. Right. When, if they look at their own life or anyone else's life around them, that life isn't that linear. Yeah. We don't get to to live that perfect flow. Exactly. What's perceived as a perfect flow. Let me just clarify that. Things are perfect in the way they happen. Yeah, exactly. And I think our department even going through that, it was new for everyone. It was new for my management and my coworkers and somebody had to go first, I guess, right? So I was kind of the guinea pig of what they would do with me. So not only the female on the platoon, that was, right. <laughs> let's do that first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then now yeah. this. Right. So yeah. there was a strong mix of judgment and support in your own mind to do this. Was there a strong mix of judgment and support from the department? There was a little bit only because, again, like first person going through it, you know, again, I wasn't through my classes yet. So I was still, even though I was pregnant and I was off on light duty per se, I was still at work and I was doing a different job. So I was actually, I was in prevention. They'd never had anyone go off before. They didn't really know what job I would be doing. And at that time we weren't doing 24s, so we're doing four on, four off. Um, So my my shift changed to Monday to Friday, uh, working with fire prevention. We were short staffed. But I was still able to, when my classes came up to, to go through them, I was still allowed to do that. So I, I went through my third class exam and I was pumping and I, you know, I couldn't pull the holes. I think I was like seven months pregnant at the time, but I was still allowed to go forth with that exam. And I know there was chatter about it. You know, to put it plainly, here's the argument from that side. Right. You're going through classifications, being promoted to the next level but yet you're not gaining the practical experience of that another person would be. So why are you allowed to do that? That's basically the argument. Correct. And you framed it in a very great way from a different perspective Mm -hmm. about, say, an injury. So how? Mm -hmm. explain that to me. Yeah, so I mean, if you're presented with the option to be able to continue with your classes as a female and having a baby, but then if you're off with an injury or you're on light duty and you were still offered assume that most people wouldn't turn it down either. So I think it was just something new that our department hadn't gone through. And it was just more about education and making everybody aware of the rights that it's no different than somebody off on light duty because they hurt their arm. 
because I'm having a baby and they're still allowed to go through their classifications. Like I really honestly believe it was just education for, for the whole department and, and making people aware, right? Everything comes back to perspective. Absolutely. We apply templates to one thing that we're okay with and mm -hmm. we don't apply the same template right. to the other situation. Mm -hmm. It was already a difficult situation, right? And so just knowing that and making that decision to move forward was was hard. But then not being able to work with my, my coworkers on a daily basis and having to do a completely different job, I mean... It was difficult. It was hard. It was really hard to not be able to day in, day out, do what I was doing that I got hired to do and I worked so hard to do. You were barely settled. Yeah. In yeah, all those yeah. different levels. Absolutely. And again, I don't regret my decision or anything like that. It's just... The reality you know, of it. it's just, yeah, it's just the reality of, of how things had, had to be. I mean, I chose to be off the truck, so that was my choice. And I, I understand that was, it was all my choice. You know, you're off, then you're off for, I took the year off to be with my daughter too. So then, um, you know, I'm off for uh, a year and nine months. And so, and being new and then, you know, trying to come back to the trucks, um, it was pretty, it was difficult because I was on a different platoon. When I was off, they moved me to a different platoon, which obviously there's things that happen in that time that has to be done, right? But at the time, though, right, you're just like, oh, gosh, like, you know, I, I just I just not like 100 percent comfortable. And, you know, I, I wish I could share my story. I wish they would, you know, understand and listen to me. And it just took time. It took time for them to get to know me because the platoon that I was on didn't even know me. And it just took time for everybody just to kind of settle back down and and come up to me and, and talk to me and be truthful about it and real and educate people about what actually went on and, and why. And so really, that's another a topic and issue that our culture can serve to shift on and be better to each other as a family and be more supportive and not make it harder on someone than we need to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think approaching someone and actually talking to them about it and talking to them face to face and having that conversation, right? Why would we want to do that? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like a lot of work. To <laughs> yeah, I know. It tends to go that way. So yeah. I think that that plays into anything that we do in even like in the fire service, trying to have that real conversation with each other and try to not make judgment from someone else trying to influence you maybe on a decision about someone and, and really going in there and getting to know that person yourself. So you had forest firefighting experience and then you had the volunteer experience. Mm -hmm. You just start your full time career mm -hmm. and then you mentioned you moved into fire prevention. Mm -hmm. So how was that shift in transition? You did, probably didn't see that coming. It wasn't on your radar. How did you adapt to that? And how was that experience for you? Yeah. Instead of doing the four on four off that we were doing, I was now doing Monday to Friday. Even before I got on to fire, I was doing shift work. So doing the Monday to Friday for me was really difficult. But I worked with some amazing people in fire prevention and I got to learn the job that they do and really respect what they do. And just kind of seeing the other side that a lot of people don't get the experience to do that. So I was, I'm very fortunate that I was able to have that experience and be able to get to know their job. Yeah, we've uh, talked about on previous episodes about how fire prevention doesn't really get the accolades that they deserve for preventing the deaths. It's true, yeah. And I mean, I, I find that if you don't understand the job, then you, you kind of, you get that feel that it's prevention and, and suppression and we're all trying to do the same thing and help people out and help our community together. So I'm just really fortunate to be able to have that experience. I think we need to recognize that just because we love what we do so deeply and so much, it can very often be said, well, how could you ever want to do anything else? Where it's more of, there's other people that are just as passionate about what they do as 
about what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can respect and appreciate that. Absolutely. Because I was back there for such a long time, I think some of the people on the floor just assumed that I was going to continue on with fire prevention. But I mean, it wasn't my choice to do that job. That was just what I had. They had given me. So it felt like when I did go back that, you know, they just assumed that I was going to be a fire prevention officer. Right? They had and your life planned out for they you. Had, they had my life planned out for me. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And whenever a job would come up, it'd be like, oh, aren't you going to apply for that? <laughs> like, I didn't actually get hired for that. <laughs> I have a little bit of experience, but... Uh, a Monday to Friday for me, uh, it was a deal breaker anyway for, for me. It was difficult to make that transition from shift work to Monday to Friday. I really loved firefighting and I wanted to get back and, and work with, with the guys on the floor and, and do that shift work again. <laughs> Maybe we should just call them departments instead of divisions. Divisions is very much like right. separated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're <laughs> over di- there. We're, we're over divided <laughs> from there, right? We're siloed and right. we're all on the same team. And I've seen this play out when FPOs make the transition from that role and they, Mm -hmm. and then they choose in their life that they want to try suppression. It takes a different amount of time for them to come in and be accepted. Well, no, you're an FPO. This is the way I see you now. And you're supposed to operate this way in my life. You're over there and I'm over here and now you're here and this confuses me. (laughs) (laughs) Go back to where you were. People just trying to get their minds wrapped around stuff. We've had suppression go to fire prevention for injuries or whatever, and they weren't able to do their job anymore. So I think we're lucky that we have that option if something happens and that, you know, we don't have to give up our whole career. I think we're just really fortunate. And another privilege is taken for granted yeah, until we need it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, even if it's not right for you right now, maybe down the road it is. Never say never, right? <laughs> you said when you came back that you had a really good crew. Mm-hmm, yeah. Were you tight knit? Did you drill together, cook together, work out together? How was the transition back? Yeah, we did. I mean, initially I had to go back to our main hall for the first month or so just to kind of get retrained and make sure that, you know, all my skills were up to par. And and then I was put out to a different station and I had never worked with this crew before. We just all connected and we just really got to know each other. And uh, there actually was another female that was there. So that was the first time that I had was able to work with another female. So it was not a different dynamic. They were just very welcoming. And um, yeah, we cooked together and we worked out together. Yeah, we did everything that crews do, I guess. And so, yeah, they, they really welcomed me in, I guess you could say. Did your crew talk about rough calls? Yeah, I think we always, you know, we go to calls and come back and we definitely debrief naturally while we're having dinner or whatever if we're cleaning the trucks or or training and stuff like that and you know that was a really big part of it and the tighter you are I feel like you're more open to each other to be able to share that information and it wasn't really like detailed necessarily but it was just we would talk a little bit about the call and just you know see how we felt or if it was something we could do differently or, or whatever so it was really it was great to have that ableness to share with each other. When did you first start to see crew members having a difficult time and you helping them out and when did you first experience being helped in that way so yeah i was at a a different hall with a new crew and we'd been working together for a couple years and really bonding like got along really well like did all of our cooking and our working out together and when you're working in that close quarters you really get to know people and their personal life and just how they are had uh, one of my members really have some stuff that happened in their life and start struggling along with some really bad calls. Unfortunately, that person experienced and then ended up being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so it was really difficult as a crew and as a department to see one of our own members go off. And someone who had probably one of the strongest minds that I ever known and being taken down 
like that mentally. It was really difficult for all of us to watch, I guess you could say, and really not know what to do or, or how to help. We'd never experienced actually having somebody diagnosed with PTSD, one of the first people in our area and definitely in our department. So it always happens to other people, right? Yeah. And it was just, it was education again. I mean, none of us were really aware and didn't know how to help. Well, many of us have probably experienced seeing people with what we would think is the best health and strongest bodies that we would imagine be taken down briefly by illness or injury. We seem to process that and know that they have a path back and that they can make it back Mm -hmm. and that they will make it back. But we see it differently when it's in their mind. Yeah, for me, I mean, because it was a person that was at my hall and we knew each other so closely and that person always supported everyone else. And now kind of the tables are turned and it was education, really learning about the illness and the way that you can support and the department too, really just understanding it and, and understanding how you can help without trying to fix that person. For me, I think I tried to fix things and I just wanted that person better. I only knew them at a certain way. And then you see them going downhill and you're not sure how to help. You just want to fix it. You do anything you can to make them better. The member went to an inpatient program. They were there, you know, trying to heal and work through some some things that they were working through. And when they were completed the program, I think everybody on the floor and, you know, a lot of different people had perspectives of, oh, you're done the program, so you're going to be fine now and you can, you know, come back to work. Some people can, are able to go through that program and are able to go back to work and are able to live their life and move on and just have tools to be able to cope and be able to continue to live their life healthy. Uh, But some people are not able to do that. And, you know, you're given all these tools and skills and then you're, you know, you're sent home after this program and you're sent home back to the place where you are alone and and scared and you're still not necessarily connected to the department and you're expected to to get better and so and you're concerned about judgment oh for sure oh huge right i mean people for sure i mean that's what we do we we tend to judge if we don't understand whenever that person would come in to visit to try to keep connected oh when are you coming back when are you coming back and it, it's a lot of pressure for that person if they aren't even remotely close to that now, I know you almost died and you've been in the body cast for eight months, but the body cast is off now, so get back to work. <laughs> right, exactly. It's just easier for us to get our heads wrapped around a physical injury, right? If we haven't been exposed to mental illness and stuff, it's just new and foreign. And being in that program and then going home and thinking that everything's going to be fine and you're going to be completely changed, and then you're not, and you still need resources and you still need help. There's such a gap in our system of that help. You're given these skills, but then once you're out, you're expected just to be better. And I think that's kind of why I ended up trying to to have this support group once a month for first responders in our area that when people take these programs and they have that support while they're taking the program, and then when they're out, they don't have that support anymore. And so it's a safe place for first responders to go that they can feel no judgment. And maybe if that month is, that's the only time that they're able to even get out to share their story and to make connections with other people and, or go for coffee. So what we've done is we've, in our minds, just shortened the process when the process is actually two to three to four times longer. So if we just had a better broadened perspective on the entire process, we'd be able to be better to each other. Right. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done all across the board for mental illness. 
if there's something that isn't being done, I think that it's up to us even as first responders to make that happen. And if somebody needs that group, then let's create that group and let's have that for support. So what is the group that you mentioned? Um, so it's called Wings of Change, and I facilitate the chapter out of um, the area that I'm in. They don't have to be diagnosed with PTSD or anything like that to come to the meeting. It's just a safe place to go and talk and, and chat about what you're going through and share resources and, and just try to help each other out. You know, if you have a psychologist that you like, that you want to share and and just have a safe place to go and talk because it's just nice to walk into a room and not have to explain yourself. You just know that the people that are in that room understand what you're going through and potentially you can help each other. And this is outside of the fire department, so it's all first responders. That's right. There's no connection to the department whatsoever, and it's all confidential, and we don't take attendance or anything like that. It's great to have that meeting and have that resource out there, but I find that the people that are struggling the most aren't able to make it out to those meetings. I find there's still a gap. Some of the people, and I, I know so many people that could utilize that meeting and have that support but if they're not able to get out of bed, they're not going to make it to a meeting with a whole bunch of strangers and share their feelings. Well, that's a great point. You know, you have a hard time even thinking about brushing your teeth or having a shower. How are you supposed to do that? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it's great. It's great to have that as a resource for people that are able to do that. But I still think there's a gap there where there's not that support, especially if you don't have support at home, then you're kind of left on your own. I'll even throw in um, retirees. We could do a better job of keeping them connected. Like vets returning from war. And now your job's yeah. done and go back to life. Exactly. I had this conversation with a retiree from a different department. He was sharing how it's difficult to keep that connection. I mean, that's all they've ever known. And to be honest, there's probably a whole lot of retirees that are struggling with mental illness that they don't even know. They don't even know that that's what they're struggling with. And generations prior that have just retired. Exactly. Like we may be in a better place mm -hmm. yeah. because of what exists now when we retire. Mm -hmm. I just watched a brief video, I believe I posted on our podcast Facebook page about a Philly firefighter who had actually done what so many people have been told to do is keep a journal of every single shift. And, you know, I ended up compiling it and scrapbooking it. And he really talked about how firefighters die twice. It's a powerful, universal experience for all of us. And it's coming for all of us. So why not embrace it and realize that we'll be there one day. So let's try and put some things together. If anyone's out there and wants to build that up. Then... <laughs> I mean, you're having the retirees actually speaking out about it themselves. And so they're feeling it. So I think if there's something that needs to be done, we need to do it. Take the reins and help each other out. It ties into ageism in our culture. And if you're not shiny and new and beautiful and strong, we have a hard time respecting our seniors, our elders in our culture as a whole. So yep. once you're done and you're done, mm -hmm. then we're done with you. Exactly. I mean, they've seen so much more and gone through so many changes in the department and they're a wealth of knowledge that we're not tapping into. And I really believe like for peer support that we could tap into that. I know when I took my peer support education, my instructor was from FDNY and they utilize their retirees for peer support because they have that experience and it keeps them engaged, it keeps the retirees engaged in the community. So everybody's winning, right? You've got them helping support peers that are struggling on the job still. And then they're staying engaged with the department and it's a win-win for everyone. And like, it's such a resource that I think we could tap into more often for sure. Yeah, because why wouldn't you want to talk to someone that is made it through and then you would see them thriving in life afterwards 
and know that that could be you too. So you can set that as your goal. There, your inspiration. There's your, I want to be like you when I get to your age. Mm -hmm. And you can then walk it backwards and then plan your life forwards from there. And maybe they're struggling as well, though, and they're able to reach out to that person that's struggling and, and know what they're going through. And yeah, they've made it out, but maybe they are also aware of, of what the job can do to and help to educate the younger people that are coming through. And you have that respect of them. You know, like you said, they've, they've made it through. So that respect is there. And sometimes it's easier to maybe not even talk to somebody that's on the floor that's still you're working with on a day to day basis and to reach out to somebody that is retired, but they're not in your day to day. Yeah. So then you make use of this anonymity that they have right that is in a way forced because they probably would like to be able to stop in the hall and recognize everybody again but mm -hmm. things shift so quickly and mm -hmm. you feel more and more like an outsider but that outsideness instead of it being a loneliness mm -hmm. and, a, and a mourning and a loss is you can make use of that anonymity by allowing people to reach out to you because you know they know that you're not connected that deeply to it and it's not going to get back even though on the peer support teams that are in the mm -hmm. department in front of you, that confidentiality exists. But there are people that are still wary of it. They could have that other source. And who cares where the help comes from? I don't really care where you exactly, go for it. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. have to be through me. Just get it. Right. I think that ties into, you know, utilizing your community of fire departments that have those peer support programs that are already running and that are already successful. So if there's a department that's just getting started out and you have a good program, why not share those resources with each other? So just to touch back to Wings of Change, we mentioned how for people uh, that may not be able to even get out of bed, it's really difficult to make it to groups. But once you do get to that point, these groups are invaluable. There's obviously with peer support teams, very often, you know, a certain framework is used like SISM or like a psychological first aid. Is, mm -hmm. is something like that a part of Wings of Change as well? It's not, there's, you know, kind of a format that you follow. Every meeting is run the same way. It's not a formal meeting per se. It's formal in the way how the meetings start and we kind of get the guidelines out there. I mean, we're not psychologists. We're literally just peers running these groups. So it's not that we have extra education. Not to say that the facilitators don't take that on their own. In their current department. Yeah. They've taken manners. They've taken psychological sure. first aid. They've taken SISM and now they're doing this. Yeah, exactly. And and we're continuously learning and we're, you know, there's different webinars that we're continuously learning about as we go. So that's consistent. Um, but the meetings themselves are very casual. It's just the very first few minutes. It's just, you know, getting out the guidelines and talking about confidentiality and, you know, not talking about details to maybe trigger somebody else in the group. So just kind of getting those guidelines out so that if you go to a meeting across Canada, a Wings of Change meeting across Canada, it's consistent and it's run the same way. And it's not a continuous meeting where, you know, if you have people that are regulars, you can jump in at any time and be welcome. Like an AA meeting would be. Right. So you're also involved with your peer team in your department. So how's that going? Yeah, it's going good. We So we just formulated the team. Um, we have a few members on each platoon that are peer members. Uh, we've all taken the two-day IFF program. We all went around to the, all the other stations on each platoon and just kind of had open conversation about what we do and what we can offer and, and how it's kind of different than critical incident stress. I mean, it could be anything from them going through a divorce or just stress with their teenage children or, or anything, and they just need guidance on where to look. Or they could be really struggling and, and need some help immediately and help guide them in the right direction without them having to do the work themselves. And your department has an employee family assistance program as well? We do, yeah. 
being able to know what that offers and, and being able to tell that to our members. And I mean, sometimes people forget exactly what that entails. And there's so many different avenues that you have assistance with. And basically empowering and informing when you realize that all you can do is guide them and walk along beside them and yeah, exactly. and scaffold them. And what did we say? It's not the pure do for team. <laughs> yeah. It's the pure support team. Exactly. The keyword is support can't have anybody do it for you, but you can have plenty of people around you helping you through those difficult stages to get better. I feel like I'm a better peer supporter because I've gone through that and I tried that route and I it didn't work for me or the other person. And so it empowers me to know that it's up to that person to get the help, but they have to reach out. But it's also up to us as peers to educate our, our, our members, you know, what to look for too. And it doesn't have to be one of us that they have to reach out to, you know, it can be anybody they can reach out to, but, you know, educating again on what to look out for. And if somebody's, you know, acting a little different or a little more quiet or a little moodier or whatever, and having that conversation and being real about it and not being afraid to ask how you are. We live in close quarters. We do 24 hour shifts. That's a long time together. You're going to notice things in your peers and it's being able to open up and, and have that conversation, no matter what that conversation has to be. I think it's, it's just being honest with each other, right? And just trying to help each other out. So on top of the peer support world, because you don't have enough <laughs> irons in the fire, <laughs> yeah, you were also involved in the health and safety side of things. Yeah. How did yeah. you get involved with that? Um, just wanted to get more involved with our department. I really believe in and making change and, and having and trying to work for the health and safety of our members and wanting to try to to help to influence that and taking talk from the floor and being that person that can bring it forward and, and make change. Yeah. So I did that for I think I did that for about seven years. One thing that peer support work and health and safety work and instructing work teaches you is the process. And how long sometimes a process is to make change. Yeah. <laughs> that there has to be some compromise and give and take. Mm -hmm. And yeah. ideas don't just pop into mind and, and end up on trucks or in stations or in firefighters' heads the next day. Mm -hmm. It's a long game. Absolutely. All of them are long games. Yeah. You definitely learn to be a part of the system more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's understanding how it all works, right? And I think sometimes we forget that, you know, we want... We want something and we want it now. Well, how come that's not being dealt with? Well, there's like a hundred other things on the plate that we have to deal with and there's budgets and this and that. It's understanding where, you know, management's coming from, but being able to still make it clear that this is something that we want and not putting it under the carpet, but continuously bringing it up until it's it's dealt with the relationship on the floor and bringing things forward and working together to get what everybody is is going to be happy with in the end. So, and it could be difficult. So there's a sweet spot. <laughs> there is a sweet spot. And it's dynamic. A little bit of trust in relationships. Yeah, exactly. Like trust that we're doing what we can. We're bringing things forward and we'll go as far as we, we can with this, but we need to work with them to get to the same place. <laughs> so understanding that and respecting that there are a lot of players in the game that have valid things that need to be addressed. One thing we were talking about discussing today was when does health and safety at the far end of the spectrum become unhealthy and unsafe? When are we removing so many things from our people that we're actually doing them no favors at all. Again, there's that kind of sweet spot too with that. Obviously we want our members to be safe and we still have to serve our community. 
There's things that are changing and dynamics that are changing all the time and new things that are coming down the line from the province and things that we have to address that, you know, other departments have addressed. And so you kind of flow with how everything else is flowing. I find that it could be hard as firefighters to be able to say that we aren't able to do something when we just want to help. And sometimes I feel like you have that sense that you're getting things taken away and that you're not able to do what you want to do to help the public. You know, you show up and, you know, the public expects you to act. That teetering again of, you know, I'm not supposed to do this, but that person's there. And it's like always in the back of your mind, right? You know, I want to be safe, but I also want to help the public. That's what we're here for. We don't go into safe situations. We are called Mm -hmm. when things are unsafe, when things are dangerous, and they need us to enter into the dangerous space to make it safe for them. I became aware recently of a crew on a department that had concerns about going in to do live fire training. Mm -hmm. So now we're down to burning straw and pallets. And a number of departments, I think, have gone this way to propane fires, where it's you hit a button, fire on, hit a button, fire off. My concern when I heard that was in the not-too-distant future that we would be at a funeral for a firefighter that dies in a fire, Mm -hmm. and then we go through the training records, and they never actually fought fire. And then that would become a health and safety thing. And then we're back to (laughs) what do we do to train these people properly? So I think before it goes too far, I think we need to have dialogue from both sides. What is this sweet spot of practical, knowledgeable, well thought out, aggressive firefighting without being reckless, right? What is that sweet spot? You know that there's that conversation all the time when anything new comes out on the floor that we, new equipment or anything like that. And I think if everybody understands the whole picture moving forward, then it's maybe easier to absorb. So I relate it to getting a new truck or getting a new piece of equipment. And then you think about where is it going to go on the truck? Sure. And then you try and put it on the truck and it doesn't fit. And now you're like, this cabinet needs to be adjusted. Yeah. <laughs> so then you start adjusting the cabinet. You're like, the cabinet shouldn't be like this. Right. And eventually, if you go deep enough into the rabbit hole, the next thing you're doing is you're on a committee, how to spec trucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it can go even farther where to play this all the way out, that the province, say, could mandate that trucks have to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. So on the practical end of actually having this tool and pulling it off the truck, realize that that's not useful. It's not going to help. It's actually a danger Mm -hmm. that the only way to make changes is to go to the provincial level Mm -hmm. (laughs) and fight these fights. So it's it's how much do you care Mm -hmm. and how much fortitude and endurance do you have in yourself Mm -hmm. to, because now as these departments get bigger and things become more and more regulated, You have to go to higher and higher levels because Mm -hmm. everyone's hands get tied all the way down and everyone's just checking boxes and making sure they're doing what they're told to do. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to make change. And it's a difficult conversation because you're talking about health and safety of our members. On one hand, of course, you want our members to be safe as much as you can and incorporate the best things that's going to protect us as responders. On the other hand, we, we want to assist our public and the community that we serve the best way that we can, like we all do. That's why we are doing our job. And so I think that's where the unbalance is, I think, right now in a lot of departments is like you've got the members and the firefighters that want to just help the public in any way that we can. But then, you know, sometimes cities, you know, don't allow you to do certain things. I mean, we're not allowed at my department to do certain rescue. So we have to call out other departments. Being a firefighter and being on the ground, we want to do all those things, but it's not up to us to decide that. It's up to the city and the budget and the training that goes along with that. And once you start doing special 
rescues and special situations, then it's an investment. It comes down to money, right? And once you start that program, you can't just drop it. You got to continue that training, continue with the equipment that you have. I think we all have good intentions of wanting to do all those things, but sometimes it's out of our control too. As badass as it would be to pull a pump (laughs) to a call with horses (laughs) and to wear a patch coat and boots and to ride the back of the truck, Mm -hmm. as badass as that is and how we wish we could time travel and experience it, (laughs) in the same breath, I'm happy with my gear and I like my pack and I like the freedom uh, and what it allows me to do, mm-hmm. where it allows me to go that mm-hmm. maybe other people couldn't go before. Right. So yeah. health and safety works. Oh, absolutely. And it can make exactly. us more aggressive. That's the one end. It's just the other end. And I think as long as we look at both and, and keep ourselves somewhere in the middle, I think we're in pretty good shape. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So a longstanding part of the fire service, now that we're <laughs> segueing from tradition and patch coats and is community and charity work. So how have you amongst all these other things, integrated that into your career and your life? What charities and fundraisers have you been involved in? So I'm with an organization called Mom to Mom Africa. I've been with it for now, like probably six years. Um, I'm on the board of directors. I got started on it because I wanted my daughter to kind of understand that there's people in this world that aren't as fortunate. And so I supported a child in this organization in Arusha, Tanzania. And so that's kind of where I got started with it. And then it just kind of morphed to me helping out and a board member went off the committee and I was asked if I wanted to join. And then we have fundraisers and there's a lot of things that we were trying to do for the kids in Arusha. So we, we know we've built an elementary school, we built a well. And how did you raise money for that? I mean, we were not for profit, so we can't get charity status. Big organizations aren't able to donate lots of money to us. And so we can't give receipts that way. So it just boils down to having bake sales and car washes and just incorporating different businesses in the community that are donating to, you know, silent auction stuff that we do. And it's like grassroots kind of fundraising with the community. And I found that I could tap into the resource of the fire department and help us out with that because we know we're always looking to help out the community. I have a great department that is willing to help out and you know we started having some car washes at our apartment for all four fire halls we do like a rock climbing event in the city nearby that you know the firefighters will come out and they'll belay while the public comes and um, climbs so it's engaging the public and it's also you know promoting that local business as well and then we're then giving back the funds that is donated to another community across the world which I think is a circle right you're just you're kind of tapping in that circle and I think being able to to do that and incorporate my career with my passion for helping other people and, and the passion that I have with this organization. And being active. Yeah, and being active and, and incorporating the community. So the fire department and the community and then the organization that, that's helping these kids. It's a win-win. And it, it's amazing to see that support all around come out. It's just great for everybody. I think everybody can benefit from it. I think even just doing all that work, you could be applauded for it, but not one to sort of stop at just car washes and bake sales. I mean, you could always climb a mountain, <laughs> right? You could do that too, right? That's available. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. So, so, <laughs> so tell me about that experience and how that came to be. So the founder of mom to mom she was going over to visit the kids in Arusha and she asked if I wanted to come. I was on the board that time and I think for me to make that connection and actually be able to meet the, the kids overseas and I think it, it helps when you're on the committee to see how they live and physically meet them. And I wanted to meet the little girl that we support and just get a better grasp. I've never been anywhere 
like that. It's not just a picture on the fridge. Yeah, you know, it's not. And so at the time I was working at the fire hall and I was saying, oh, I'm going to Arusha. I'm going to go visit the kids and we're going to go for a couple of weeks and check it out. And one of the guys at my hall mentioned to me, oh, well, why don't you climb Kilimanjaro? I'm like, what's wrong with you? I don't climb that. <laughs> uh, no, I, right away I said, no, what are you talking about? He's like, no, really? Like it's one of the easiest mountains of the seven summons to climb. Like check it out, right? And that day, like an hour later, I think I started Googling it. I'm like, oh, like it's a hard hike and it's, you know, kind of grueling, but it's in the same area as where our kids are that we support from mom to mom. And so I started kind of planning and I started asking everybody that I knew. A couple of firefighters were like, yeah, I don't think so. And so I, I, I literally couldn't find anyone to, <laughs> to come with me. So I was planning on going on this trip myself just to climb. But then I thought, you know what, why not make this a fundraiser and involve the community and, you know, have that climbing Mount Kilimanjaro for Arusha. It's harder to donate money just to a charity or a not-for-profit and just say, oh, here's some money for these kids. But to say, you know what, we're going to climb this mountain. We're going to do this to help raise money to build a well. But I still didn't have anybody to climb with. So <laughs> then I was just on the playground at my daughter's school one day and there was a girl that I was aware of and we were just having a chat and randomly <laughs> asked her if she wanted to come to Tanzania and climb Kilimanjaro with me. And she said, well, I just have to ask my husband and I've got to throw it through him but her face I knew that she was wanting to do it so to make a long story short <laughs> we uh we joined forces and uh started raising money went over and climbed and summited Kilimanjaro and raised money to build a well at the one school that we support over there any plans to do another summit up another mountain um did you get a <laughs> to get a bug yeah well so so the thing is I actually had a lot of altitude sickness thinking of that like and I think knowing how how much I did struggle on the mountain it makes me want to actually try it again to see if it was just a fluke <laughs> but you had a really heavy energy and spiritual shift yeah during that experience so and it, and it wasn't the goal of it I mean there are a lot of people that choose to you know I want to climb Everest it's on their bucket list mm -hmm. for them they want to say I did and here you are going to choose to do a climb for other people not with the intention of having any kind of shift within yourself yeah absolutely not yeah. and i think very often when you go in with that openness but it can be unexpected mm -hmm. so how yeah. was that for you yeah and it's funny because before i climbed kilimanjaro i had people like you know people that have climbed mountains before and had different experiences say to me you know the mountain's going to change you and i was never spiritual and never tapped into that before all this I was kind of like, yeah, whatever. The mountain. How is the mountain going to change me? I'm just climbing the mountain. I'm going up and coming down. That's all I'm going to do, right? And like I was telling you, I was struggling with altitude sickness. I was a few hours from the summit and I was really struggling. I couldn't walk. I couldn't carry my pack. They didn't weigh very much, but I was getting to a point where I couldn't walk straight. They took my little pack from me, which was hard for me to give up just to see if that would have helped. I actually had the porter standing behind me, holding me up because I couldn't even walk straight in, like literally pushing me up the mountain. And so we got to a spot, we had a break and I was, was not doing well. My friend kind of looked down at me. I was pretty much blue. Like my oxygen levels were depleting very quickly. And I knew that I was not, like I had to probably go down really soon. My guide gave me, I believe it was an anti-inflammatory, but to this day, I really actually don't know what he gave me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just go with anti-inflammatory, sure, I think. Sure. <laughs> 
And and he said, like, if you don't get better, then we're going to have to go down and I'm going to take you to hospital. You're not doing well. So we'll give you a little bit more time, but we're probably going to end up going down. And then we kept moving on. We took another break. I had to stop. I wasn't, again, I needed to have a piece of chocolate or some tea or something just to like settle myself down. And all I could think of was... I, I have to get to the top, right? The sun was coming up. There's this like, whole scene that I remember in my head of the sun coming up. You know, I had my fire department flag that I was going to take to the summit. And I had, you know, all these fundraisers that I, I was fundraising for to build this well with my community. And they're expecting me to be at the top. Like, I am not, not going to the top. Like, I started envisioning myself standing at the summit. I would want my 20 bucks back. Yeah, no doubt, right? <laughs> you didn't get up there, you can have your money back. I'm sorry, <laughs> I failed. <laughs> and, and I had that. I just, I had to get to the summit. And I never didn't see myself at the summit. It's hard to explain if you've not been through it, but my energy completely shifted. My thoughts changed to getting to the top and stopped focusing on my pain and feeling sorry for myself that I wasn't going to make it. And I switched my whole train of thought and my energy and my body completely shifted. And I started walking and talking. I wasn't even talking up to that point for like at least a couple hours. So I started talking, you know, the rest of the group were looking back at me and excited because they knew that something had shifted in me. And I mean, to this day, was it what I was given, I don't know, but I felt something come over me and, and I honestly believe it was the thoughts that I had, the positive thoughts that I, that I shifted my, my whole way of thinking of, and that vision of me standing on the top of the mountain, I think totally changed it for me. So you had a, an experience of the body affecting the mind. Absolutely. And then the realization that the mind can affect the body. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you could have said that to me before that and I would have thought you were high. <laughs> so and since that day and that experience, I've completely looked at life a different way. Kind of your thoughts can change the way that you think and the way that you feel. And change your reality. And change your reality. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Is the peer support work and this shift is that what spurned you to now enter into the life coaching course? Yeah. So I think just, you know, being more spiritual now in general and just accepting things that come into your life, I really just allowing it to flow. I mean, for me, the coaching thing, you could say fell on my lap. I wasn't expecting it. No way in heck that I was going to be going back to school. I'm already done with that. I was not expecting it. I just kind of went to this program. It was a weekend my friend was taking, the girl actually who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro was taking this life coaching course and she asked me to come with her for the weekend. And within the first hour sitting there, I knew that it was something that I needed to do. And I knew that it was the gap that I felt like I was missing and that I knew there was something more that needed to be done with first responders, but I didn't know what it was. You know, I the Wings of Change meetings, it's fine. Like I said, like if people can't get out though and, and physically get to those meetings and what about those people and how are they going to get their help? And for me, you know, talking in that class for that weekend and talking to psychologists that were there for the specific reason, then what I actually realized that day was there's a different avenue that we can go here to help them. You know, psychologist was there so that she could then help her clients who are dealing with their past now deal with their future and help them to move forward. And it was like a light bulb going off in my head. And like I said, I was no intentions going to continue on with this course. Pretty busy in my life already. <laughs> it wasn't really wanting to take on a, a year long course, but it was just meant to be. It's allowing that stuff to enter your life and just accept it and go with it and see where it goes. So I really believe that for our first responders that are struggling 
that, you know, that have maybe already taken a program, but are at home and they're not able to kind of move forward and, but are already seeing a therapist. So they're already seeing a therapist and working, like I said, with their past, but then, you know, having a life coach to work with them, to get them going on, you know, moving forward and, you know, some little goals that they can start to see and start to see that progress and start to kind of see that light again. And I think that's a massive gap that we have for, for anyone really struggling with mental illness in general, let alone our first responders. And so it just made sense to me. So what ties in with all of these things is if we're going to stand up and be vocal about how to get better, about how to stay healthy, how to survive things, the most critical thing is that we walk the talk, right? So living where we live, we're pretty lucky mm-hmm. to have Absolutely. all the opportunities to walk the talk. Absolutely. So talk to me about self-care and how that's become a really pivotal part of your life and then allowing you to hand this over to people you're going to be helping. What do you do? Yeah. So I think for me, I I had to experience not self-care to know that I needed to self-care. I think a lot of people have to kind of get to that point where they have to go through some rough times to figure out change and what they need to do in their lives. So for me, I think I was helping so far and jumping into the box with people and it was all happening at the same time. And I was struggling myself that I needed to gain that control back in my life and know that if I wasn't better, then I wasn't able to help anyone else. And so for me, self-care means a lot of different things, but I needed to be healthy again and I needed to do something about that. So for me, I, I joined a CrossFit gym when I moved, we moved up to this area and that had a sense of community that I needed to help boost me back up and just really, you know, taking time for myself in between shifts and getting that energy back and spending time with friends and family and doing the things that I love, like mountain biking, rock climbing and stand up paddleboarding and snowboarding. And I mean, we're in a great area to be able to do that, but I don't think I would be able to give back if I wasn't doing that in the extent that I do. I just don't think that continuing on a path of not taking care of yourself is you're able to give back to anyone else. So. You can't maintain the strength. It's no. again, the long play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? yeah. Yeah. And it's checking in all the time and making sure that, you know, your life gets busy and, you know, stuff happens and you want to help people, but it's, it's learning to say no or, or guiding them in a direction that someone else can maybe help them if you're tapped out and knowing when that needs to happen and really being more self-aware, I think, is is the biggest thing that I've learned for sure. It is the most respectful thing you can do for somebody. When you're tapped, mm-hmm. the biggest superpower you can have is realize you are mm-hmm. and then not try and do more and do a disservice to the person that actually needs you. No one's going to get what they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's super important. Even trying to get people on this podcast, I've had the, you know, them, t- them say to me, yes, but no, not right now. Yeah. And yeah. Like, That's cool. Yeah. I get it. I'm, <laughs> I plan on being here for a while. So. I got you on my list. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So you're already committed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I'm glad you were yeah. able to make it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. This I appreciate it. Yeah. Right on. Awesome. Okay. We'll talk soon. Yeah, for sure. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye.